Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronos podcast. Um, it has been a few. It has been a few weeks, so I apologize to listeners, but I have a super special treat for you guys today. This is episode sixty of the Petronos podcast, and it is Friday, October seventh, twenty twenty two. And I have an absolute treat. Um, I've talked about Lou and and Eprink and my my former employer and the work that you guys do for a long time. Um, so I am really pleased today to have my my former boss, uh, Lou Polarisi, who's president of the Energy Policy Research Foundation in Washington, D.C. And we are we are absolutely going to talk about Biden's ridiculous policies um, on, in, when it comes to energy and his sort of desperation um, with regards to this, this OPEC meeting. Uh, but hey, Lou, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, but... Uh... Calling me your boss was very uh, much too exalted a title. <laughs> it was it was for, former boss. You were my first boss, and it was it was great. Lou Lou Polarisi was an excellent boss. Um, and, and my as as I think listeners know, but my my background at the Energy Policy Research Foundation at a nonprofit, sort of cutting my teeth on shale, was um, was fantastic and gave me a lot of a lot of ground a lot of grounding. But Lou is based. By the in way, DC. Trisha, let me just say yep. your work was instrumental as they say at the Pentagon, changing the view about energy security at the Pentagon. So let's just get that right out there now. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. That's awesome. Um, so uh, Lou and I still visit with each other and see each other, and he's in D.C., so he's um, you know in the Beltway, and he's you know seeing a lot of the craziness. Sometimes Lou and I have to go back and forth on me telling him what's actually happening outside of the Beltway, and he has to tell me what's happening inside of the Beltway because clearly there's you know there's there there's a disconnect in reality when you go to D.C. Um, but right now, and it's important. I always timestamp these podcasts, as Lou knows, but uh, WTI is ninety two sixty one. Brent's 9789. Super important reason to say this because, you know, I, I had some previous recordings with podcasts, but just a few weeks ago, we saw 76 handle on WTI. So we have seen a massive uptick in, in oil prices. Obviously, part of that is because of the, the OPEC cut that we just saw this week. Henry Hub is 668. That has come way down from the near, you know, the $10 highs that we have seen. Dutch GTF is also way down. We're at 5085 today. The 30 year mortgage rate, however, is way, way up. Um, and that is over 7% at 7.12. And I'm sure if you and I were to get a mortgage today, Lou, we would probably be paying way over 7%. Um, so that's painful. And that's reflecting with a 10-year yield, which is near, it's 3.86 today. I mean, it's, it's really pushing higher. And that's all the craziness going on with stock market because we had slightly better than expected jobs data out today. We had a little rally this week because it was poor. So that's, that's kind of all over the place with the Fed and probably a whole separate podcast. Um, but I do really want to talk about today, and you can jump in and, and we can talk about a number of different things because we're going to sort of wing it with this one. Um, but the impetus for this and doing this was, you know, the OPEC decision and the response by the Biden administration, I would say, has been pretty heavy handed. I mean, the stuff that I was hearing on CNBC this morning on all the things that have coming out. And and I was uh, quoted in a Forbes article um, that Diana, the head of the energy or the head of climate and energy now with the Heritage Foundation, 
Um, she has she put out an article and, and quoted me, but I'm kind of flabbergasted by the Biden administration's one that a knee jerk reaction to sort of maybe lift sanctions on Venezuela, which they weren't able to do previously. Um, and then all this talk maybe of 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 legal ramifications for for Saudis basically saying they have to they have to lift output. Um, and so I'm curious from your perspective, we can get into the numbers and we can talk exactly about what OPEC actually decided in this cut. But I'd love to know just, you know, off the cover, what's what's going on in D.C. and how people are receiving this and and what are you hearing? Yeah. And before you start, just let me just say one thing. I think if you take going back to the early days when you were doing uh, work for us, you know, our view has not changed. The North American oil and gas production platform is a strategic asset for the United States, is is a wealth creating machine, and it, it helps secure American energy security. Right now, our net exports, you know, we we and this shows the kind of uh, some of the problems the Biden administration has had because they don't really understand how these markets work. Right. We import a lot of crude and products. We export a lot of crude and products. But the efficiency of this production platform is, is because it solves minimum costs for the transportation and processing within the constraints of the regulatory framework. So net exports are about 2 million barrels a day. Right. And uh, we're running about 10 BCF a day of, uh, of net exports of uh, natural gas, which is about equivalent with what the Russians, with what the Europeans were importing from Russia. Right. We can actually expand that substantially. We can clearly sustain our net exports of liquids. So the question is, if you were a policymaker, why wasn't your first measure say, okay, how can I expand and make this North American production platform more productive, more expansive, great as a, as a, a much more uh, expansive energy security machine for the United States and our allies? That should have been the first. You can get Absolutely. into the details of the regulatory stuff, blah, blah, blah. Right. But basically, they never could get their handle around that because it was a... Uh, it undermined their view towards net zero and climate, which was very misplaced because they don't really understand how these markets work and how difficult it is to go to net zero. So well, they've got themselves stuck in my say, in terms of policy. Yep. And so do you think, I mean, so firstly, I mean, I think you're you're right on all accounts of, you know, we're producing 11.8 million barrels per day. And I do want to comment on a, on a thing that we were both at, I would like to come back to on uh, that Baker Institute. I know that was Chatham House rules, but um, we won't give anyone attribution. But you and I were both at a event with Rice University Baker Institute with the with the Capsarc and the Saudis. And I thought the takeaway on that was fascinating in terms of the negative outlook on U.S. shale. Um, but right now, U.S. shales, we're producing about 11.8 million barrels per day in the U.S. That production figures lagged. You're, you're, we're about almost 120 BCF a day of production. And I put that in perspective because the globe is consuming as a 20 2021 data from BP, the global is consuming about 390 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. So we're producing more than a quarter of this and probably let's just call it a 400 BCF a day supply and demand market for natural gas. We're producing more than a quarter of this. We export, you know, on a good day, 12, 13 BCF a day um, of LNG. I mean, so we really are, you know, moving the needle on those. And it's the same amount that, you know, Qatar is exporting, same amount that Australia is exporting. And the total LNG market, you know, is about 50 BCF a day is that total LNG market. Europe is consuming, you know, Europe was getting 16 BCF a day, I believe 
directly from from mm. Russia, which is a huge number that ha that has to sort of be replaced. But yes, we're our volumes are sort of you know competitive with that, and it it really does drive me crazy though from knowing you know when and I did cut my teeth on U.S. shale, and, and obviously my my dad and my uncle are, worked in the business on the production side and did this all with you, and so it it's crazy talk to me and thinking that, you know, when the Biden administration came into office and they immediately canceled, you know, they actually put a moratorium on on all permitting. They actually rescinded permits on the day they came into office for for federal permits. And then they put in that was from the acting secretary with the Department of Interior. Um, two months later, the, you know, they sort of removed that and they allowed permits to start flowing again. But that executive order 14008 on climate change has had lots of ramifications that I don't know if people really appreciate. And I've talked about a ton in this podcast, but part of that was to immediately suspend lease sales on federal land. They did. They were forced to have one lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico, which was a record lease sale because everyone knew it would be the only one during this administration that was illegal for their hands were forced. Then they basically came out during that and after that and said, this is the only one we're doing. And we have a bunch of, you know, legal mumble jumbo that reasons why we're not going to do these lease sales because of the executive order. And so, I mean, part of my thinking of, you know, hey, if you really cared about and this is energy security is extremely important, I think, as we're seeing globally and and things that you hear all the time on the stock market, whether you're listening to Bloomberg or CNBC or anything or BBC or anyone in a discussion about energy is they always say, hey, the, you know, the U.S. is in a much better position because, yes, they might be saying $10, uh, you know, MCF Henry Hub, but they have that natural gas. And that's the reality is that the, we are in a significantly better position. And something you never hear from this administration, you also never hear in any news source, is that we are the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the entire world by far by actually a long shot we're still producing about 800,000 barrels a day if not a million barrels a day more than Saudi Arabia and we produce way double the natural gas that Russia does and so the administration is just I think really they're they're very anti-domestic oil and gas and I think that's something that people have to understand is um, when we start getting into this OPEC policy making is that being anti-domestic oil and gas production is really damning to your um, your economy and your energy security and your ability to maneuver Right. The most effective counter-OPEC strategy is the diversification of supplies outside of OPEC, particularly in the United States. If you right. want to constrain OPEC's cartel behavior, produce more oil and gas. It's a very effective counter-OPEC strategy. And I think these guys kind of got lost. They had a view, they had a very what we called an OECD-centric view of net zero and what could be done. But in fact, as the work we've done, even if the entire OECD went to net zero, which it's not going to do, total carbon emissions in 2050 would only be about 20% less than in a base case. Right. Asia Pacific region and, and, the sub, and, and the African continent, they're going to grow so much in the next 30 years that they're not going to be interested in collecting very expensive alternatives. A classic one right now is China. China, the U.S. actually did the path-breaking work on destination restrictions for LNG exports. As a result, one of the interesting things that's happening in China now is they're just calling Houston and say, don't send the LNG to us, just send it to, to Europe and send us the money. And you yep. can just look at the data now. They're moving to more coal and collecting a, a huge uh, kind of rent subsidy, if you like, rent payments because of the high price of gas. Yep. So it's it's just amazing that the administration is so struggling with this. We need oil and gas in any energy security 
scenario going forward. And if you want to keep the economic value of that, even in a high price, a high price environment, you want the U.S. to be a big oil and gas producer. This right. is the funny thing. Okay, prices are high, but that's much better when we're not producing a lot and prices are high because now we're getting the inframarginal money. State, local, and federal governments and corporations are getting lots of money from these high prices. So at least we have a chance to reinvest that money. Well, the problem is, Lou, I think you're speaking rationally. And the difficulty I've really, and I've really, really struggled with this administration is because I haven't seen anything, anything, you know, I'm, listeners know that I, I try to be as bipartisan as possible, but I, there's nothing positive I can really say in terms of this administration, you know, knows what they're doing because uh, th- they don't seem to execute well. Now, there's a little bit on being hawkish on China that I've I've been OK with. Um, I think there a lot, a lot needs to be more done, uh, more done on China. Um, and you point out a couple things on coal, but I want to come back to like this. So basically the reason everyone's talking about this is because the white house has been pretty vocal in the stuff that they're saying um, immediately following this response. And clearly they were talking to the Saudis before. Um, And what's very interesting is they've, really struggled. And it's it's made the Democrats kind of look silly in some ways that the Biden administration has been sort of, you know, went over to Saudi Arabia, um, didn't really get anything in return, and is very desperate to lower oil prices um, because all their policies have been very, actually very inflationary. You can't, you can, and, and it looks to me like a lot of vote buying. I mean, you're you're literally right now, you're decriminalizing marijuana, you're you're doing all this stuff right now, right before midterms, and you are and you've gotten rid of, you know, no one's paid student loans in three years. You've extended that past midterms and you've forgiven a lot of loans, which no one cares that a lot of that loan payment didn't go to the bottom half of America. It went to very you actually went to a lot of wealthier Americans who could afford to pay those loans back, but they, you know, they got rid of that. So, you know, they're sort of buying votes from the younger people. And then this thing with oil prices. This is a big deal because they really need gas prices low because it's one of the single biggest indicators of how people vote. And when they came out, so it was from the briefing room. This is from October 5th, two days ago. This is the statement from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and the NEC Director, Brian Deese, which I have a bone to pick with a lot of things he says. But basically, they say the president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision by OPEC OPEC plus to cut production quotas while the global economy is dealing with the continued negative impact of Putin's invasion of Ukraine at a time when maintaining global supply of energy is paramount importance. This decision will have most negative impact on lower and middle income countries that are already reeling from elevated energy prices. And as the largest oil producer in the world, you know, and I'm not a fan of the Saudis or Russia, but as the largest oil producer in the world, I would say the response is you are the largest oil producer in the world. Why don't you increase your output? And we'll do, I mean, it is it is crazy. Actually, there, there is even a, so let's say a few months ago, the Council of Economic Advisors of the uh, staff at the White House called us up and they were interested in some of our work on the downstream. And they said, I'd recently testified in front of the Energy and Commerce Committee and Congressman Merkley from West Virginia asked me, OK, what's one thing we could do right now? I said, you could do three simple things right now. You could take the renewable fuel standard down to 10%. You could uh, lift the ban on a shipment of products included by the Jones Act. And you quit mm-hmm. balkanizing the fuel system. We actually sent CEA, and when I say balkanizing the fuel system, I mean that you have different standards for gasoline specifications, California, right. Nebraska, Texas. This adds to the efficiency. We, we, we gave them a pathway to take 30 to 40 cents off the price of gasoline. They were really interested. We gave them all our data. 
We gave them all our data. We didn't even, we didn't, you know, we didn't hold anything back. So we sent them right. everything. And what did they come, what came back a few days later? Oh, they're going to go ahead with E15. That's their strategy. So they are unable to get either, they're so focused on the politics of this stuff. Where they, well, we'll just throw a bone to the farmers and it'll be okay. But, or it's a more serious issue. There's nobody who understands how these markets work. There's yeah, no one understands they, what you do to get right. the cost structure down. And actually, it's really, it's really kind of a tragedy. It's a, it's well, a, Lou, it's a, I think you and I talked at the beginning of this administration, and you've heard me in multiple settings in D.C. I think that, you know, I was warning folks of grid instability the moment the Biden administration came into office because I knew that, you know, their plans to to force renewables into the grid and their, you know, 2035 net zero plans for for greening up the grid. And I think that there's no one. And I, I know that you guys were hopeful, but it doesn't seem there's anyone in the administration that truly understands hydrocarbons. And you can be anti oil and gas all you want, but you still have to understand this because because when it comes to geopolitics and when it comes to the global economy, it comes to the U.S. economy, you have to understand oil and gas markets and pricing and all these things that, you know, I mean, the renewable fuel standards, cafe standards, you you have to understand how, you know, putting ethanol into the gasoline, but how this all this stuff works, because you're making the, And that's where I say so much of this looks like vote buying to me. And that's what's exhausting to the American populace to say, you know, you're doing all these inflationary measures, but you care about oil prices right before midterms. And you're I mean, we're down the strategic petroleum reserve is down down to 1984 levels. And you are guaranteeing, I mean, if you just go into EIA and you type in strategic petroleum reserve, you can see that, you know, the decline of where we're at. And the strategic petroleum reserve was not intended to be used for political will like this. We, we've we never had an administration in history use the SPR to this degree. And we have went through this two shocks in the 1970s and everything up till now. And we've never done this. So people have to start really, and we don't see any criticism at all of this administration oh, yeah, yeah, on failed Policymaking on, and so they they made us less energy secure. They're so hell bent on this, you know, twenty fifty net zero and all this green stuff. So basically, they're trying to not admit to their young voters that they're clearly trying to buy off with with pot and and everything else. They're trying not to admit to folks that they are that we need oil and gas, right? And that's really sad because we desperately we're still using it, right? And they're using it. He's flying in his chopper. They're flying in all their planes. They're I mean, they're not. You know, you would say. I think Lou, my old boss, is, is famous for saying. If you want to eat mung beans and live in a cage, that's fine, but I'm not going to do that with you. Um, and so you can do these things, but they're they're very painful. And I think this administration is realizing that, you know, you can't just shove this stuff in here and the markets don't work the way they thought. So if they had $80 oil or they had $75 oil, it would look different. But we, you know, if you look back in, in over the course of the shale revolution, you know, the U.S. contributed to those lower oil prices. And everyone keeps saying, you know, and I want to harp on this this one thing, Lou, and you can see if you, because you you explained really well the things that you've advised that we could lower or that we could increase um, output and lower prices. And I would say approving, given Keystone XL is already basically built, except for a little bit of it, um, as well as multiple, you know, is multiple gas pipelines, approving Keystone XL and accelerating the finishing of it, because it's almost a, and, and get it flowing as quickly as possible would bring down oil prices. The full stop, we would bring them probably down by five to ten bucks. If and and then the permit approvals. So on lease sales, we are approving permits on federal land, although it's significantly lower than it was in, in every administration prior. So very very low. And they always say, well, you've got nine thousand permits. Why don't you just drill those? And and we could have a whole separate podcast of why that doesn't work in oil and gas of just you know having this stuff. But it's the permits that are expiring. So you know over the course of COVID and the two 
years that was messy and everything. People didn't necessarily drill wells because it wasn't economic. And we've had a lot of federal permits that are expiring. And every administration up to this one has always basically reapproved those expiring permits. And this administration has nearly taken those to zero. They won't approve expiring permits. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they, so could, they-, they could approve those. They could do Keystone Excel. They could remove the Jones Act barrier. Um, and they could actually probably approve. I really do actually think the stuff on natural gas would be beneficial to oil because you're producing NGLs, you're producing condensates and all that condensate comes up and that isn't, it's an it's oil and it will help weigh on oil prices. Right. You have to begin to change expectations on the regulatory framework and the government. Right. If you, it's true that if you do the math, you don't get a big number in the next thirty days or nine. But that's not the point. If you can shift expectations and the futures markets, okay, well, the U.S. is going to behave rationally. We're going to begin to adjust how we deal with Absolutely. inventories, how we think about uh, commitments to uh, export facilities, import facilities, investments in shipping. I mean, like Excel. Who's the way the Keystone Pipeline doesn't do much? Well, no, it does a lot because it makes the platform more efficient. Absolutely. And if you make the platform more efficient, people up upstream and downstream tr- start to make investments. They become more confident of it. And it's a signal. This is a big it's a problem. signal to the market. Right. So I think they don't understand that. If you go to DOE now, one of the problems is we tried to get somebody to participate in a panel or one of our workshop workshops, and they had nobody who could talk about oil and gas. They had lots of people who could talk about carbon management. Right. But I don't think the American people are really that interested in carbon management right now. Nor do I think they could even do carbon management effectively if they don't actually understand oil and gas. Because you have to understand this stuff well to know where the carbon's coming from. I think these prices of gasoline are just going through the roof in California now. And they keep talking about other things. If you listen to the press, it's horrible. Nobody says... Well, maybe California policy has something to do with these high prices of gasoline. You'll never see that in the discussion. No. And but it's never entirely that. driven by government policy. It is. It is. And I think the problem is, I think I'm a little more concerned that the Biden administration, it's not just that they don't know, it's that they do, they're, they do know that they don't like oil and gas. And and that's been very clear from the very beginning of the administration, that they are hell-bent on making sure we need to, and they say it in all the stuff that this is all these energy crises is, is why we need to, they say, in the end of Jake Sullivan, in that statement, they say, finally, today's announcement is a reminder of why it is so critical the United States reduce its reliance on foreign sources of fossil fuels. With the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. is now poised to make the most significant investment ever in accelerating the clean energy transition while increasing energy security by increasing our reliance on American-made and American-produced clean energy technologies. Shocking, you know, interesting from that is that most of, I mean, all the solar panels we're buying are from Asia. All those solar panels are coming from China, from the province of Xinjiang, from forced labor made from coal. So nothing, and they do say foreign fossil fuels, um, but it's, it's you, you can't, um, you can't be anti-oil, domestic oil and gas. And I think it was almost Hutchinson yesterday who was on Bloomberg when they were interviewing him. They said, you know, I mean, they asked him straight up. They said, look, you haven't been very friendly to the, you know, American oil and gas. Why don't you, instead of begging the Saudis, why don't you, instead of begging the Saudis, go to the domestic oil producers and say, what do we need to do to get you to produce more oil? And almost Hutchinson said, you know, I take I take issue with that. We haven't we haven't been anti oil and gas, and you know we talk to them all the time, and we're doing everything we can. It's outrageous. That is not a correct statement. It's not. It is not. And it's I was not so a correct but, statement. But, w- w- tell me your response to that because I have my own, but I would love to because everything. If you I were is- positive 
about this oil and gas, you would have the banks in the room. You take all the banks into the White House and say, right. okay, you know, uh, Mr. Diamond, you said out in front of the Finance Oversight Committee last week that if we stopped investment in oil and gas, that would be the road to hell. Okay, what yep. do we need to do about that? He should get exactly. the banks in there and say, look, I understand we have to get on this pathway, whatever their political politics, this pathway to a transition to the fuels of the future. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to give up on the production of oil and gas until these are viable alternatives. And guess right. what? They are not viable now. And so right. he should be setting the tone to give confidence to Wall Street, to the banks, to the investors, not just the people who are making short cycle investments, but people who are making long-term investments. Right. When the Chenier facility had the fire, right? Uh, on the export facility the in, yep. in Louisiana. Freeport, right. He should have sent a FIMSA team down to Freeport and said, yep. look, they're working 24-7 till we get to the root cause so we can get them up and running. He should treat it as if we were at war. We're not at war, but he should treat it as, as if we were at war because this is doing enormous damage to the national economy, to our energy security, and we actually have the resources to respond to this. We do. And actually, the world, the, the, I think that brings up a nice point is that I do think the world is at war. Um, and I think that that's not, it's not something people really do appreciate is that, you know, we, we keep talking about energy security and they don't, they talk about Putin's invasion of Ukraine and, and that's relevant. I mean, it, that has something to do with it. But oil prices were on the up and up well before Putin invaded Ukraine. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's, so, so the administration, not only are the statements false and the fact that they don't have the, they, they clearly don't have a deep understanding of what's going on with oil and gas markets, but you know, they could fix that. There are enough of us out there that are willing to help them, you know, understand how this works. But you know, the problem is, is that, that no one wants to, no one wants to actually invest in this stuff. And we see that actually in case in point, I, I was on a Raymond James panel on LNG earlier this week on Tuesday. And, um, one of the big takeaways from that was that um, LNG exporting. So nobody in Europe is signing long-term contracts with the U.S. And that's a real problem. You know, Tellurian has has not FID'd yet. And Tellurian had to back out. You know, Sharif Suki has talked about this and, and public and their stock has dived, I believe, because they didn't they tried to issue these long-term bonds. They didn't work. Shell and Total have, have backed out. And so the problem what you're seeing now is that you have companies like Exxon and Chevron who are intelligently seeing that the world is going to need natural gas and LNG. And so they're investing in it but the issue is that the the uh, countries like Europe the European Union and Europe even though in this crazy sense of desperation that they're in to get natural gas they still don't want to sign into long-term contracts with the US which is there's a problem with it it's very hard to invest and build out these businesses and build all this infrastructure in the US and and build a market for it people have to realize this is a 50 bcf a day market this is very very new it's a fraction of the global oil and gas market and that gas unlike coal and unlike oil we can't move it around the same we have to compress it um and you have to you know you have to you turn it into LNG, you have to you know, change everything up when it lands, and then you have to put it through pipelines um, when it gets there. And so it, this not signing long-term contracts because you don't want to, you want to be green in the future is massively problematic. And to your point, the banks are, the banks and the regulatory side, the SEC, Janet Yellen, has a role to play in this. So it's a big deal to me when you have to, sig you have to signal to the market, your money movers have to, you have to have BlackRock. And I'm, I'm, I'm 
I think it's great that states are finally pushing back on BlackRock saying, you know, you're killing our state because you're not letting people invest enough and not having enough money, not having the banks understand that they have to invest in this. This is a serious issue. This is actually what the World Benchmarking Alliance and most of the entities and activist investors, this is what they wanted. They've been pushing for the divestment of fossil fuels and they pulled trillions of dollars out of the system. And the result is this. So it's, it's something that people have to realize that's multifaceted and it, it comes together and it's extremely important to realize, especially in the context well, I of war. I think actually there is a change underway. The banks are moving and stuff. It may probably not fast enough. And also the, uh, so the politics, there's, I asked some of my democratic friends about this and I said, well, I don't quite understand this because, this is really not good for your these high gasoline prices, high right. heating prices can't be good for your traditional constituents. So, Lou, you don't understand. It's not the constituents; it's the donors. Yeah. <laughs> and so you think about it, but the donors are not that. They just they put a lot of money into the system. So I actually think the system is slowly, painfully going to get fixed, or we're going to get on some ro- on on some pathway to a better outcome. But we're gonna do. We're gonna have a lot of pain as a result of it, and 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 uh, you know we. You could just see it even in Europe now. They're starting to talk about fracking in Germany, restoring gas production, holding on to the nukes, because the the outcome is just unrealistically bad. Right? It's just. It is, and I, I think I think that they've um, you know. The fact that those pipe, you know, Nord Stream one and Nord Stream two, both having being sabotaged, you know, and and uh, everyone's pretty sure we know that that's Russia doing that. It's really important to think about because I'm not sure it. it it's kind of case in point, and I bring bring this back to you know not signing long term contracts on LNG because you're you have these climate agendas and climate policies and these goals. You know, a very simple chart, and I sent it to you and and some other colleagues. A very simple chart. If you want to look at energy security, it is a chart of European. Oil, gas production and European gas consumption. And European gas production um, goes down to 20 BCF a day as of 2021. And gas consumption is all the way up to 55 BCF a day. So consumption continues to go up, production continues to go down. And all of that came from Russia. And they basically just thought, hey, we'll get the we'll get the gas from Russia. We'll get 16 BCF a day from Russia, you know, and that no big deal. We'll do that. And then we'll work on, on our own stuff of, of getting green. And the scary thing about that is that is what this administration, the U.S. administration, is trying to do is saying we can reduce our domestic oil and gas output. We'll get it from these foreigners, and we'll go green, and everything will just work out. Even though we haven't figured out how to work out, we'll just do that. And it gives, you know, massive, massive leverage to entities like China and to entities like Russia. But Europe is in this boat where they've they've allowed that production to decline. They're not signing these long term contracts, and now they're saying the things like you're saying. Hey, we're we're lifting the fracking ban in the UK. Um, we're talking about you you know, increasing this domestic output, they're burning coal. We're going to see coal, per, you know, uh, consumption go way, way up. They're burning as much coal as they can in mothball facilities, any facilities they can bring back just so they can they can keep the lights on. But I think it's really important to think about in terms of, you know, European energy security. When they sabotage those pipelines, I do believe there was this prem- this thinking in Europe that, hey, we're going to be able to get that, that gas is going to flow again, right? You were going to get that gas from Russia maybe in a year or so, it'll come back. And Russia's made it very clear we're not flowing gas to you via Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2. It's over. And I, it also makes, you know, that drives the point home of if you look at the revenue that Russia makes from gas versus Russia makes from oil, 
it's 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 a drop in the bucket for gas. That is not the money driver for Russia. This wasn't it, for the, the economic pain on Russia from not sending gas to Europe is not that big. And the fact that they were still buying gas, the fact that they're still buying oil and they were getting a premium for it has really helped Russia offset this. But now that they're saying, hey, you our flows are going to zero. You're not going to get it in the future. It's a really big statement. And it it's beyond, you know, it takes the conversation beyond just this is, you know, this is energy security. You have to think about this seriously to, you know, you may never get these flows again from Russia. And you you get flows in from Turkey. So you had Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 never flowed, but that was your main conduit. You have gas that comes in from Turkey from Russia and you have gas that comes in from Ukraine. The fact that there hasn't been any during this whole course of this war, there hasn't been any disruption to those Ukrainian flows, I find very interesting um, and something that folks need to pay attention to and look into, um, but that they could, they could shut that off at any time. But it's the, the meaning, the, my point behind this is that that gas is far more valuable to Europe than it is to the exports are to the Russians. Um, they simply, it simply does not matter that much. And they've been able to maintain their oil flows. And that's why this OPEC plus thing is very interesting because OPEC plus does include Russia. And if you look at the numbers that they released, the OPEC releases, they, the biggest drops are from Saudi. So we know Saudis are going to take, uh, take their own voluntary cut. And their OPEC figures showed Saudi at, you know, they show themselves at 10.9 million barrels per day. Personally, they say they're producing just over 11 million barrels per day. But OPEC figures say 10.9. And it's interesting because they, they, they have Russia, they show them in their OPEC figures going down, right? That production is going to go down to 10.5. And that was before they did this this cut. And then if you look at the cut in the announcement on the document they attached to it, they show the exact number, Saudi Arabia dropping by 526,000 barrels per day, and they show Russia dropping by 526,000 barrels per day. So this is also a statement that OPEC and Ru that Saudi Arabia and, and Russia are in this together. And I think that's very, very hard for Europe and the world to sort of wrap their arms around, and the U.S. particular, is that all of this is interconnected, and the only way to fight this is to produce a lot of a lot so of. Actually, you know, if you can go through between 2000 2019, over 80 percent of world liquids demand was provided by the U.S. Absolutely. And gasoline prices, or crude prices, subsequent gasoline prices, remain quite low through that whole right. period. Right. Right. So it's an amazing statistic. That's it's, I think it's 84 percent. Yes. So yes, the U.S. not only did it generate a lot of wealth uh, uh, expansion for the U.S. producers and U.S. governments and state governments and local governments. It kept the price of uh, petroleum products quite low. Now, you could argue that's difficult to sustain forever. And we went through the pandemic and there's lots of supply chain problems. But I agree with you. The right answer to this would be to describe and publicly pr promote a series of policies that were going to make the North American platform actually fire up the Canadians and the Mexicans. You could probably get a little more action out of them yep. and say, look, we're, here we go. We're going to be here for the next 20 years and we're going to be a yep. big force. So you can go ahead and cut production or do these other things, but you're going to be a net loser on that. Yep. And it's a kind of game theory problem or game problem. And the Biden administration is doing the absolutely wrong. They're playing their the chessboard in a way that says, oh, we can do whatever we want because these guys aren't really that smart. Right. And they're, they're, they're so uh, embedded in this monolithic view of climate. Look, there are lots of problems in the world and climate might be one of them. 
but also is uh, so starvation and dysentery in Africa, nuclear war, and the health and robustness of the American economy. All those things. You can't just have one thing that you're preoccupied by. It's ridiculous. No, it- and that's very short term. And that's why that's why I really I mean, and it's and the media coverage on it is so, so bad. Yeah, so the media is terrible. You can never There's no criticism. That. There's no criticism of of this administration in these massively failed policies and these very short term agendas that have hugely long term you know, repercussions. But I think in terms of that, of you know, energy security, and obviously that's something that Epring cares about that you know, I've studied and, and spe- if, if you work in oil and gas and you study this stuff, energy security, and you know anything about geopolitics, it becomes very, very critical. And I think the ability, even even coal, and I know people are very anti-coal, and I, I, I understand that from, you know, emissions perspective. But the reality is, is that um, coal is very easy to move. We, we can, you know, put it in a truck, we can stack it up, we can stockpile. We don't even have to use it. We can just have it. And we can just say, okay, we're ready to use it just in case we need it. And the Chinese do that. The Chinese actually have increased their you know coal fired power generation by a thousand terawatt hours year over year between 2020 and 2021 that's more than all of the us's coal-fired power generation so when we are you know getting rid of our coal-fired power plants left right and center in the name of green policies that very have very little impact on actual co2 reductions and we're getting rid of jobs and we're getting rid of energy security in my hometown where they say we'll, we'll just get rid of the power plant and the coal mine and we'll figure that out later we don't know where the power is going to come from but we'll figure it out later and you know of course the the ceos of those local you know those local uh the, the power plant and the coal mine, those CEOs, they're going to have jobs somewhere because they've lobbied their ass off in, in Denver. And, you know, with all these Colorado lobbyists and politicians, they'll have an eventual job, but all those thousands of jobs are gone. And so it's, it's a very deep rooted, you know, these things are, you know, sort of across the board in terms of energy security. And I, I mean, it's very hardly, you know, oil and natural gas have a massive role to play. Um, and it's not saying that I, I know coal has a lot of issues, even just from a, a pollution standpoint, but from an energy security standpoint, it's something that the world sort of, you know, I think Joe Biden is, is noted for saying, you know, they're eating our lunch in this and they're eating our lunch in that. And, you know, the China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and everyone is eating our lunch when it comes to hydrocarbons and understanding, because when they produce it and they get us to, you know, not like it and not produce it, um, they put us at they have the power. And if you look at Saudi and you look at their plans to increase output, their investment right now, they're putting it back in the drill bit. They're drilling more and investing in oil and gas because and I think it's very interesting that they're also very pro-energy transition, meaning that they talk about it. Same thing as, as China. China's never going to hit their net zero standards, but they talk about it a lot. They're heavily involved in right, the UN. Right, right. They're part of the UN sustainability goals. They've got the Belt and Road Initiative labeled as green through the UN, all these things. And Saudi, the Saudis have, you know, are, are embracing the energy transition to a degree as well because um, it benefits them in a lot of ways. If we stop producing, if we lower our domestic oil and gas production um, in Europe and in the U.S., then the person, the com- entities that are going to be producing this stuff is is Saudi Arabia um, and Russia as well. So, I mean, it makes sense that they're going to be reinvesting this and they're going to be producing it. And I, th- I do think that's a long-term agenda and plan for them is that we slowly decline our output and that they're sort of left, you know, they have the production. And they've stated this very clearly. Mohammed bin Salman stated this, uh, I think, about a year and a half ago, very, very clearly in the interview of exactly how much they're producing and that the world's going to sort of fall by the wayside. So I just think it's really important to realize that if you actually cared about CO2 and if you actually cared about this stuff, you know, climate and other policies that you would want to produce, you would want to control that production at home. Right. And also, it's quite clear to me that forget about how you feel about climate. 
we, if we're going to do this, we should try to find the cheapest way to do it. We should not necessarily select a strategy which hobbles the American economy, that picks the kind of technologies that actually make it just as vulnerable or more vulnerable. Uh, so it's really hard to have a rational discussion on this. It's really difficult. It is. And if you say, look, I'd like you to think about how we do it. Oh, you're a climate denier. We're not a climate denier. We don't really think that much about it. We look at, we just try to figure out what's, what's a cheap way to proceed to deal with uncertainty in these climate risks. I mean, we can't even get people to have a discussion on the relative role of adaptation to mitigation. Here's a very interesting story. Large storms have hit Florida. I used to fly with the hurricane hunters. I know a lot about this. And in the 60s, early storms hit Florida, but nobody lived there. So, of course, they didn't do a lot of damage, but a lot more people live there now. But what most people don't, if you take the last storm, all the homes that were built with the new standards in 2007 in Fort Myer were completely undamaged from this storm. Which shows you that we can have, when it comes to climate issues, even if they're not related to global warming, we can have a strategy of adaptation as well as mitigation. And we should be spending a lot more money, particularly when a lot of the net zero stuff's not going to work. No, and that's that's where I think is really, really, and that's a great point that you make. Um, and it's really interesting is that, you know, um, the IEA, which I just think is um, the critic, people really need to stop listening to the IEA um, because, you know, everything is net zero. And they, they have a new chart in a new report that they show basically by 2030, you know, they have this chart with a massive reduction in, in CO2 emissions and a massive increase in, in energy production, you know, massive increase in electricity production, and this perfect, they perfectly align, 30% increase in, 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 in yeah. CO2 emissions, 30% decrease in CO2 emissions, 30% increase in electricity, but it's all batteries, wind, and solar, almost it's all of that. Right. And all of those come from, all of those come from China. So 80% of all of those, over 80% of all of those are coming from China, which they never talk about, you know, issues with that and, and war in Taiwan and, and, and Xinjiang and Uyghurs, foresight, which is amazing. The International Energy Agency sitting in Paris never discusses that but that's aside i'm assuming they get a lot of money from china um so that that aside the actual wind solar and batteries and batteries may be a little bit different but when it comes to wind and solar in these extreme temperatures and particularly when we saw this energy crisis really starting to to brew and, and rear its head was actually in 2021 and it actually started in sort of 2020 in that winter beginning of winter in 2021 and where we had a cold snap in europe then we saw in fall of last year in late summer you know hydropower wasn't working well in China because they didn't have enough rain. And we saw this drawdown. And the problem is when it's really, so when it's really hot, you don't have enough water. So your hydropower is is problematic. And um, we've seen this in, in Europe where the barge flow, they, you know, they barge a lot of uh, coal, they barge a lot of oil and they've had issues because they haven't had enough rain. But the problem with that is not, it's not just hydro and it's not just barging, it's your wind and solar. And so when it's really hot, sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Um, and it's actually when it's really hot, I believe there's an impact to, um, you may have enough sun, but there's an actual impact to some of these solar panels as well, where you don't get quite the efficiency. And then when it comes to battery vehicles, batteries from a storage standpoint may work, but EVs actually in extreme temperatures and very hot or very cold, don't work as well. The range has massive issues. Um, which is why that, you can get a very effective response from hybrids. But, you know, one of the things right. people said, what should we do about this? How can we help policymakers? So we said, look, the first thing you need to do is quit giving policymakers 
levelized cost of energy numbers. That's a great point. Because we're misleading them. Because we have the data from Japan and we show that system costs, when you get above 30% of variable renewable energy or intermittent power, above 30 to 40%, the costs skyrocket. So you can't go around to policymakers and say, you know, this must be some policy failure by people or stupidity by the utilities, because if they would just go to 100% wind and solar, we would have free power, right? Or how we devise, like the investment tax credit. Nobody, nobody sells a product at negative prices. But if you get a subsidized get, if you get a subsidized tax treatment from the government, yes, you put power into the grid even when it's not worth anything. Absolutely. And we've done that for, I think, wind and solar. And I think that's it's horrible. So we have we have a lot of bad policies. We're not really actually if these people were serious about this stuff, the approach would be much different. It, it would, would be. be and that's methodical. I think it would be more long term. You would have right. much more emphasis on research and development and less on deployment of unproven strategies. And I, I think we could get there at some point, but in the current environment. It's really, it's really magical thinking, and uh, I don't know how people get relieved of this. It'll, it'll eventually, perhaps, get fixed at the ballot box. That's the I think uh, what's our, our, our friend in in France calls it magic math. Who I've had yeah. on the podcast, yeah, it's, it's that magic math term. So, um, well, I think the last thing I think I'd like, I mean, I will definitely have you back on the podcast, Lou, because it's it's a great conversation. Yeah, so, um, let me just say, any of your yeah. uh, listeners are interested, I really ask them to subscribe to our chart of the week. It's absolutely free, of course. And our chart of the week is very popular on Capitol Hill because, well, it's not a senator, but a senator's aide can look at it and understand it in 15 seconds. It's, it's his chart of the week is really good and um, I'll be adding. So we need to do We're going to be doing a chart of the week with, with Lou on um, us oil production and the decline curve, the, the slightly more resilient decline curves than people. We are waiting for this with bated breath. Yes, yes uh, so sorry, I meant to get it to Lou a long time ago. So, um, the last thing. So, two things I wanted to talk about, um, and I always say this because uh, you know when Lou says uh, he's the, the boss term, I always say Lou was one of the best. The reason I didn't take a lot of jobs I was being offered in D.C. is because Lou was such a fantastic boss, and he was because he gave me a lot of rope. Um, and I got to learn a ton. I got to cut my teeth on U.S. shale. I got to speak all over the world, you know, and he took me in front of people. I don't know if a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, people who run their businesses and stuff necessarily let the young people doing the work sort of give the presentations and talk. And it's something that really taught me how and why a lot of folks did not understand U.S. shale because, you know, I'd be in Oxford and talking to very important people like chief economists from major, you know, international oil companies. And they would say, well, Trisha, this is ridiculous. You know, how could you understand this? But the Saudis couldn't. And I'd say, well, look, I'm pretty sure Dan Jurgen was the one that went over and spoke to the Saudis. It wasn't the younger you know, economist or one that did all the work. So it becomes this game of telephone and it's paraphrased all the way up to the top. And when you sort of just like work it together, it really was an eye opening and illuminating several years working for you that sort of allowed me to, to realize where, um, people can miss make missteps, and I got to learn a ton. So I I really appreciate it. It was it was we were we were big beneficiaries of your hard work. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. And so we will, we will definitely do this again. Um, uh, folks need to check out the chart of the week. We'll how we will definitely have Lou back on the podcast. Lou and I are going to be doing more stuff together on lots of stuff in energy security, um, that he is coming down the pipeline and, um, we'll be, we're going to be having, uh, more folks from DC on the podcast. We want to talk about the policy side. So thank you very much, Lou. And, um, we'll have you and back Let soon. me just say one last thing. Yeah. We do have a paper coming out probably in the next two to three weeks on what does it mean to stop all investment outside of oil and gas, outside of OPEC for oil and gas development. It's going oh, to be wow. very, it's a very interesting piece. Uh, so we'll uh, look for that on our website. That's fantastic. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon, folks. Thanks for okay. listening. Bye. Thank you, Patricia. Great to be here. <laughs>